heard she was insisting on taking the baby with them on the tour. What for? As a stabilizing influence. Well, since when has a baby ever been a stabilizing influence on anything? We never took the children anywhere. When we went to Australia in 1954, we left them at home for five months. And you suppose that might have had consequences? On what? The tour was a triumph. I should probably ask Charles and Diana to come and see me. This tour is too important. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode six, titled Terra Nullius. The year is 1983. And two years into their marriage, Charles and Diana are sent on a six-week tour of Australia and New Zealand. It's Diana's first official overseas trip as the Princess of Wales. And at her insistence, a nine-month-old Prince William is brought along. In the wilderness of Australia, away from prying eyes, Charles and Diana rekindle their relationship. But how long will it last? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 6 yet, I suggest you do it now, or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from Joshua Connor, who plays Prince Charles. No one was really confronting the fact that without Mountbatten, he has no leader in his life. No one really confronted the fact that he couldn't be with the woman he loved. We'll also hear from locations manager Mark Wallage. I mean, I always give the example of the Queen's walk to the audience room. She's she's actually walking through about four or five different locations that you would never know if you're the normal viewer because, you know, she starts at Lancaster House, walks through a couple of rooms in Wilton and ends up in Rutan. So, yeah, there's that kind of... Wow! Yeah. <laughs> but first, I linked up virtually with the director of this episode, Julian Gerald. Now, Julian last worked on the show in season one. So I asked him what it was like coming back for season four. It was very different because the first season I was obviously in at the very beginning and nobody quite knew what we were doing, including me probably, (laughs) uh, and what the crown was and how it fit together and the tone of it. And we had this fantastic rehearsal period where all the actors were in the same room at the same time trying to figure it out. And I had such a good time on it. I was slightly wary about coming back because I just thought, oh, it'll never be so good. And obviously coming back, you're stepping into something that's an incredibly well-oiled machine, completely new set of actors. And so obviously you've got to sort of reprogram yourself to get that. But I think it actually was incredibly exciting to see the Queen and Prince Philip in middle age and then to tackle the youngsters as they come through, especially with new actresses like Emma Corrin and Josh O'Connor. So you directed two episodes for the season, 406 and 408. Can Mm -hmm. we talk about 406, please? Terra Nullius. Where are we with this episode? What's the loose plot of this particular episode? Well, the Australians have just had an election and Charles is sent over as a tour of Australia. And in his life, obviously, he's married, but his relationship with... Diana at this point is fairly dysfunctional. She's suffering from 
bulimia. So it's a slightly daunting prospect when the two of them get on the plane. And the Queen thinks it's important that he gets his chance in the sun. And But at the same time, nobody else in the royal family is really addressing the fact that these two could implode. I wanted to wish you both luck and asked Sir Sonny to join us today to stress again the importance of the trip. Thank you, ma'am. As you know, Australia is one of the most important and influential members of the Commonwealth. If they were to strike out and assert their independence, the worry is other countries could fall like dominoes. You're too young to remember, but we also toured Australia and New Zealand in 1954. Yes. It was long and hot and arduous. Yes. But we worked together. As a team. And in the end, I think, it wasn't only a success politically. It brought us very close. Yes. And as husband and wife, we would wish the same for you. What I thought was really interesting as well is almost the the landscape of where they are, mm. almost as a reflection of their relationship. Yeah, from the research as well, there was a sense that Charles really loved Australia. He, he went there as a teenager. Uh, he went there quite a lot. And he felt slightly freer there than he did in England, where the whole weight of the what you had to do and how you had to behave was was so much stronger. I think that was about the people, but it was also about the landscape. So that that moment when they're left alone yeah. on, on their own in this beautiful sort of landscape, it's almost like a little garden of Eden. And suddenly they're able to relax and see what they really can consider this themselves and the, the others' feelings. And that allows, I think, the relationship to blossom. That seemed very important that we portrayed that sort of mm. almost idyllic. And it was, you know, we shot that as sun was dropping and it, it, it was a wonderful moment. I still think you're gorgeous. Cleverest, handsomest man in every room. Do you really? Oh, pathetic. But I do need that sometimes. And you look gorgeous too. Your beauty, your radiance is a great, shining, spectacular miracle. When I see the light in people's faces when they look at you, it makes me realise that I'm the luckiest man in the world and we're the luckiest family in the world. It makes me want to ring the Queen back in London and say, can you hear that, Mummy? Listen to that. It's a hundred decibels louder than anything you ever got. Chew on that. Choke on that. It was a sort of key scene, really, in the whole episode. That's a very long scene, which we shot top to bottom, generally, in a number of takes. Mm. And the way that both Josh and Emma go from distrust to understanding to coming together is really wonderful, I think, and a, a great piece of acting from both of them. It's a really, really moving and, and powerful scene. And then we kind of move forward in that dance that they have at the gala and... Even though we know this this story and we know the tragic outcome of this, of these two individuals, you still watch it and you still have that glimmer of hope as you're watching it and you can see that there was something there and, and that dance scene as well is, I guess, some of the happiest times that we get to see them in. Absolutely, yes. This was a real 
beacon of hope for them. And yes, there is the moment of hope. You sort of feel maybe if they'd stayed in Australia somehow, <laughs> all, all would have been different. <laughs> you, you know, obviously the turning point comes with Diana getting too much attention, which starts to gnaw away at Charles and the insecurities and all that. And the conflicts begin again. So that's the tragedy. Do you think it's jealousy or insecurity or a combination of many things? Personally, insecurity, I think. I mean, in that big scene, they do talk about that sense of wanting security and attention. And and that, to me, comes out of insecurity. And as Diana herself suggests, it's perhaps to do with upbringing and the pressures of being in the position that he's in. It's a terrible tragedy, and especially at that point in his life when he needed to to do it, I think. The state of Diana and Charles's relationship, there are so many other things within the episode that mimic that in a way. So the relationship with the newly elected officials in Australia and the Crown, you know, and the Commonwealth, but then also the Queen and Thatcher as well. So there's these different things within the episode all based around what's going on with Charles and Di's relationship. Yes, absolutely. And within that is this debate or theme about should and could the monarchy Mm modernise? Should it wear its heart on its sleeve? Should it touch and feel and hug crowds and people? Or should it have this slightly colder, more removed, enigmatic quality that has kind of been its mainstay for however long? And obviously, Diana coming in there is like the pebble in the water that changes things. And on the family side, it sort of interestingly digs into what, how you bring up your children and how you emotionally relate to your children and there's rather a good line at the end when the queen is appalled for being hugged um (laughs) and uh, i'm sure it'll have resonance for both types of families when they watch it those who are very emotionally engaged and those who are perhaps a bit more traditional you've seen how the crowds responded to me in australia here too and instead of resenting me for it i assure you no one resents you charles resents me Anne resents me, and is it possible that you resent me too? All I want is to play for the team. You're the Princess of Wales, so of course you're part of the team. Then show me. This whole thing, it starts and stops with you. You're the captain of the team. If you show me love, approval and acceptance, everyone else will follow. I think we've gone as far as we can for now. We can continue another time. Don't dismiss me, please. Don't push me away. Mama. Diana knows that the Queen wants this marriage to work. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? It is. And the Queen's wary of her and wary of her wearing her heart on her sleeve and is aware that she's been incredibly successful. I think she would be aware of Charles's angst over that. And to be fair to Charles, he was given this job to do, to go out there and shine, and and he's been put into the shade. And yes, the Queen is wary of her, but at the same time, after that scene, she does sort of take on board what Diana's saying and does 
wonder aloud, really, at, at is there something there? Mm. But of course, the Queen Mother jumps on that as quick as she can. That sort of terrible line about she must bend, and if she doesn't bend, she, she will break, which is mm. what happened. For you as a director getting to work with Olivia and Emma on, on this particular scene, what, what were the conversations that you had with Olivia and Emma and, and whilst you were filming it? We had a little bit of rehearsal time beforehand and Olivia likes to, obviously she does her own preparation and she likes to react in the moment. And Emma obviously has gone through quite a big journey on the episode and it was a very, very good journey that we thrashed through with Emma about why she was there and what the level of angst, I suppose, that she's carrying at that point. And then in in the room when you're directing it, obviously, is Olivia just taking on board what she's saying, even though she doesn't want to acknowledge it? And is Emma just beginning to get through that cold, hard exterior? Those are the sort of things I suppose one's playing with, particularly, you know, in the room, in the edit and all that afterwards. And what's going on during that hug is a sort of terrible frozen moment both of awkwardness, but of Diana's need, really, for mm. some help. It's so good, the two of them. That just stony coldness that when Diana hugs her and she just doesn't hug her back, there's nothing worse than not being hugged back. Yes, and I, I interestingly, I think Olivia, she offered an even colder performance at one point. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this one I thought was the most appropriate. Coming up later, we'll hear from Josh O'Connor about his experiences of playing Charles over two seasons. But first, I took another virtual trip to catch up with location manager Mark Wallage and asked him to explain what the role of a location manager entails. We deal specifically with finding and trying to give the director, the designer, their vision, if you like, working within the scripts. And it's a case of hunting those locations down, making sure that those guys are happy with them. And then the logistical side kicks in. Once we've done the creative side, the logistical side is making sure that those locations that we're at are happy with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a massive show. So a lot of the time we're sort of going above and beyond to, to make sure that everyone's happy in these places. Well, it's an international affair, really, isn't it? It's not just a case of yeah. Scout and Balmoral. There's, a, there's, a, there's no. a lot of different places over the four seasons so far. Absolutely. Although the, the foreign aspects are taken over by location teams in those countries, which is fantastic. Yeah. And we have enough work to do over here. So, <laughs> <laughs> When you're trying to replicate, I guess, a lot of these big regal kind of settings be it somewhere like Windsor Castle or you know we talk about Balmoral as well where do you start with something like that because I, I know that we're very lucky in the British Isles we have these incredible stately homes and beautiful buildings around yeah every corner really yeah I mean we, we work closely with organizations like the National Trust and English Heritage and they obviously they've got a vast array of properties around the country and um Quite often we liaise with those guys. But then there are other sort of well-known, privately-run state homes that we have an in to. Can we talk specifically about season four? Run us through some of the, the main locations that 
that you had to work hard to find? Yeah, we had a couple of changes this year. I think Pete's, Pete Morgan's original vision was that although the cast were changing every two seasons, the locations were going to remain the same. But unfortunately, there was a couple of established locations this year that we couldn't go back to. So it was a quite a task to sort of find something that would be suitable to move ahead. Mm-hmm. So so we lost our Sandringham, for example, that had been established at a house in, in Reading couldn't go there but we managed to offer up something a bit more architecturally like Sandringham the replacement we found up in Norfolk funnily enough and so there were things like that Beaver Castle would be now Windsor Castle for the series unfortunately we weren't able to make it work with Beaver Castle this year so we had to find a new Windsor which was a major (laughs) but lovely Burley House in Stanford came through with that and it's a glorious location and everyone was really happy that we'd made that change and it worked for everyone, like all, all four directors, all the blocks had to go there. Mm. And I think everyone was happy with that. So they were the big challenges this season was finding those new locations that everyone would be happy yeah. with. And then you've got the tour of Australia, which is obviously a big part of season four, but not going to Australia, obviously, <laughs> itself to do it. And finding replications of, of places that basically look like those places. Yeah. I know that you talk about you have local location managers who look after that, but I imagine you're still, you've got to be involved in getting to those places to work out who you're going to work with and, and where. Yeah, absolutely. And all those places you've got to find, you know, they don't, yeah. you know, where, where would they be? So you're looking at certain architecture, you're looking at a lot of agency have locations on their books that you can scroll through and have a look at, but then you sometimes got to think out of the box and think where might something else be? Yeah. So for for Australia, for example, we use Kensington Town Hall fantastically is this kind of architecture that you would readily believe is in Australia. For the New Zealand tour, we use Bisley Camp in Surrey, which is a shooting club, and it's got all these colonial buildings. It's basically set up as you've got Australian shooters, you've got um, <laughs> New Zealand marksmen, Canadian marksmen, and they actually physically bring their own shooting buildings from their countries and build them in wow. on this Bisley camp. Yeah, so you, when you look at it, you, you could be in Canada or you could be in Australia, any of those kind of colonial type fairs. So we'd use that previously with Julian uh, and he wanted to go back then it just worked perfectly so yeah all those sort of things how did you replicate Ayers Rock I've got no idea (laughs) 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 because I've not seen but the VFX department obviously have done a marvellous job on this show Are there certain departments that you particularly collaborate with? Because I guess there's got to be a seamless link, hasn't there, between the exteriors that you're shooting to sometimes the interiors may well be done within studio. So that's got to be a seamless thing, hasn't it, as well? Yeah, I mean, I always give the example of the Queen's walk to the audience room. She's she's actually walking through about four or five different locations that you would never know if you're the normal viewer because she starts at Lancaster House, walks through a couple of rooms in Wilton and ends up in Rutan. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's amazing. So in our mind, she's just walking through Buckingham Palace. She's walking Palace. through Buckingham Palace, yeah, exactly. But in, but in reality, she's running through that again. She's doing what? She's walking she, through. So she might start at Lancaster House up the staircase, walk along the corridor into a room that would be Wilton House, then along out of one door into the audience room, which is actually in Rutum. Yeah. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I wanted to ask as well, because you have this wonderful journey through time as well, and mm. whether it 
makes any difference to you in terms of the era? Does it make it easier that we're coming more up to date? I suppose it does make it easier. Contemporary filming is a bit easier than trying to find the period stuff. Although we're lucky with London and the UK in general for period locations because there's so much of it still exists. In terms of things like clearance and modern cars being moved and all that kind of stuff, just on the logistical side of things, it's easy to do contemporary filming. But And then you're obviously looking in certain areas of London for period stuff, then you're looking in other areas for modern day stuff so yeah it keeps it interesting you must love it though the fact that you've been there since since the start great show to work on great people the producers are great it's just one of those shows where you just you just count yourself lucky every day really honestly Mm. that you can go to work on the crown it's brilliant Finally, I was lucky enough to be joined in the studio by our very own Prince Charles, Josh O'Connor, who was very close to finishing filming at the time. I began by asking Josh how he approached researching Charles for season four. I mean, I did some research on a few things and I looked into the tour in Australia and read an awful lot of books about Charles and Diana from Diana's perspective and Charles' perspective. But after a period, just as last season, I think I felt more confident in the knowledge. So last season I had a decision to make. It was the first time I'd properly played someone real. Mm-hmm. I had this period in the lead-up of going, am I going to try and replicate that person? Or how much of this person am I going to try and put on screen? And and so this season I just found it a bit easier. I guess I had more confidence to go what can I glean from other people's performances? So, for instance, I liked the idea that maybe as Charles gets older, rather than go on YouTube and get all the footage, which I did in the first season, and go, how does his voice change or how does his physique change? I, I spent more time looking at Tobias and going, how is Tobias's voice in comparison to Matt's performance? And yeah. it got lower and gravelly and there's more kind of nasalness to it and I suddenly thought okay so it'd be interesting to see how maybe I could develop Charles's voice in that sense and that, and see the influence of his father rather than an influence of a YouTube video I found of him That's so really I think I guess it's kind of you're gleaning information from the world we've created as opposed to the world that exists and that felt more exciting to me yeah more interesting I guess can we talk a little bit about Emma because mm. I mean, well, my star. jaw yeah. just dropped <laughs> I know. when I saw the first scene with her. I mean, yeah. I know, it's really spooky. And it's still spooky for me. You know, I spent so much time with her and, yeah, I still get spooked out. <laughs> um, what was your reaction when you first met her? I first met her because we were actually casting Camilla mm-hmm. and a very close friend of mine said, my friend's coming in to audition for Camilla tomorrow. And I had a list of who was auditioning and I was like... Mate, she's lying to you. She's not coming in for Camilla. But (laughs) she wasn't on the list. So I came in the next day and to read with all these Camillas, potential Camillas, yeah. I love that. That's brilliant. (laughs) Worrying. Um, And there was this girl sat on the sofa. It was so spooky because she did this neck movement just normally. (laughs) She said, oh, I'm friends with such, such. And I went, oh, it's you. So you you auditioning for Camilla. And as soon as I said, are you auditioning for Camilla? I was like, in my head... I was like, of course not. She's just going to read, or she's got Diana, or she is Diana. Wow. <laughs> it's Diana. She was just pulled in as someone to read the lines for Diana. And everyone was just like, who is this 
girl. She'd done like one or two jobs. And also that's not to take away, you know, her life, her real life likeness to Diana doesn't take away from her performance, which is also extraordinary. Absolutely. For me, it's been like a treat because all that work on research and looking at their relationship and she's just got it down. It's like she breathes it. So, Mm. yeah, she's really, you know, she's going to be a star. I mean, I imagine similarly with you, she's so young, she doesn't really remember or know, didn't personally experience that whole kind of thing. So to come in with none of that baggage is such a brilliant thing, I think. I think someone coming from total purity and and just seeing the tale of a princess who is destroyed by the kind of media and Mm -hmm. by the spotlight is really helpful because also you can kind of remove all that and take away all that sort of... I guess Peter's version of Diana is that it's not as black and white as she was wronged and that maybe she had some deep issues herself and that she was maybe seeking some spotlight and seeking certain things and that she was with someone who was also seeking those things. And mm. They were very similar as well when you kind like, of... Like, yeah. strikingly similar. Because that speech, you know, when they have that moment of hope and yeah. when she says, oh, I think we actually both... We're looking for the, the same, same thing, thing. yeah. You know, I think this might be the most important conversation we've ever had. Yes. And the solution is so simple. Any time either of us feels like we're not getting what we need, we simply need to give that very thing to the other. Because if you learn anything from today, it's... We both need the same as each other. To be encouraged. To be supported. To be... appreciated. Loved. Yes. A toast to a first start. A new beginning. Happy Easter, my darling. And I think that's one hundred percent the truth. Again, in our world, I think that's the downfall. Is that. Charles needs a Camilla, but Diana also needs a Camilla, or like an equivalent. But that whole scene watching that play out, it's a beautiful, it's like, it's like an act from a play. Yeah. I think we're really lucky on this show because because Peter is a playwright, that there are these almost like set pieces, although these moments in every series. I think think back to that scene with Matt Smith and Claire Foy on the altar, where they're talking about the struggle of power essentially mm-hmm. and what his role even is as one of the most powerful scenes for Emma and I you know when we did the read through of all 10 episodes at the beginning of the series this was the scene it was the kind of because you see the hopefulness and the kind of marriage and then is this going to work and is this not going to work and you know the end and yeah. then this is the moment of as you say of hope like you refuse to come to Highgrove where I'm happiest yes because she is there Oh, and not just her, but the gardens and the polo and the hunts and the boring old philosophers and father substitutes who patronise me and ignore me but love her, presumably. Which is why the two of you are perfect for each other. So where do I fit in? You fit in because you're my wife. And... Because... I love you. I do. I do. 
Gosh. It can't have been Charles was forced into marriage and that it was miserable, because I, I personally never believed that. I think he loved her, and I think she... Yeah, again, this is our narrative and not necessarily reality, but I think they love each other, and there's kind of these moments of just trying to work out what that actually means in this bizarre role that they have. Yeah. So, yeah, I love I love doing that scene. It's great. I love this stuff with Camilla and with Charles and Camilla as well mm. in, the, in the show. Me and Ben Karen talked a lot about. We were trying to work out a way of. There are so many scenes that would happen with Emma and I, where Charles arrives from Highgrove having seen Camilla, but we don't His see Xanadu. that. His Xanadu, yeah. <laughs> we were trying to articulate what it is, like a feeling, and Ben said, "Okay, let's." from now on refer to Camilla as a pack of Camillas that she's like a pack of cigarettes <laughs> and every time he goes back he's trying to give up smoking and every time he has a Camilla he's like that's the last Camilla and then he comes and sees Diana and <laughs> I mean slightly <laughs> reductive to Emerald's brilliant performance <laughs> but some, it, sometimes it really helped me going into scenes and just going like I had a final Camilla back to back to Diana and it was this really helpful view and then the other day we were doing a scene with Emerald and Ben went remember Josh it's your final Camilla and she was like I beg your pardon (laughs) she was absolutely horrified what is this Um, yeah incredibly reductive but yeah I think those scenes with Camilla are great again it's another sting for for Diana and for Emma to play is this idea that whatever happens Mm. there is a third member of this relationship who knows everything One can't rely on her for the simplest thing. Letting the side down wherever she goes. How would I get through the next six weeks without you? By ringing me every day. Letting me cheer you up. You're going to be brilliant. God, I miss you, my darling. Your adulthood. If Diana had one ounce of the strength of character that you seem to display at every turn, then perhaps we could rescue... God, now what? It never ends. I'll call you back. How is it for you when you are recreating specific moments, though? Like the mm-hmm. the engagement speech is a great example of that. Yeah. Where we know the words that they said and we know the, the situation. And As soon as I took this part, I remember the first video, when I started typing into YouTube, Prince Charles's voice. The yeah. first video that came up was him saying, whatever in love means. Wow, that was the first thing. It was the first thing. It's the kind of most viewed Prince Charles archival footage, because it is to us now. It's so ridiculous, or it's so hurtful, telling and telling. Mm. For me, I kind of yes, I try and replicate and try and get his voice down for that particular moment, so that people go, "That was exactly how I remember it." But I think you've kind of got to be careful not to fall into the trap of looking ahead mm-hmm. too much. So, yeah. it, for instance, in that press conference, when they say, and are you very much in love? And Diana says, of course. And he says, whatever in love means. For me, or, and for everyone, of course, we're like, oh my God, that's that's awful, because maybe he wasn't. Mm. 
But I think he's in that moment, he's genuinely said, you know, that's just a very British thing. Yeah, absolutely. And male thing at the time of just yeah. going up, oh, I don't, don't embarrass me in front of my mates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So little moments like that, I do think sometimes it's worth, and I feel like The Crown generally is a kind of, from a production point of view, spend so much time in getting those moments really right. Yeah. As a man who, like you say, you know, talk, he's been wronged and stuff, and he has all this internal, internal misery, basically, yeah. that you never really, we've never seen in terms of the public, but also in the way that how is Peter trying to allow him to explain that and explore that, or do you think he is at all in terms of getting that pain and misery out? I think it's difficult because obviously with The Crown, we're looking at the isolated moments of drama mm-hmm. across a long period of their lives yeah. and, I, and in reality things don't happen in this bulk way and so in between yeah. all these moments of gloom and rubbishness are like with anyone moments of joy and so periods on the tour of Australia where there's actual happiness yeah I think helps that and uh, helps lift Charles out of the gloom and uh, like I often think with with any kind of depression or mm-hmm. mental health in any shape or form things build up and things that feel small at the time build and build and build until it gets to a point where that person can't manage it can't Mm. keep it suppressed and and I think what I found helpful with Peter's writing is and the way we've kind of structured this season and last season is that it's a build of a series of events that are bubbling and that no one's really confronting no one was really confronting the fact that Without Mountbatten, he has no leader in his life. No one really confronted the fact that he couldn't be with the woman he loved. And that everything's kind of building and building until we get to the near the end of four where we just see a slightly broken man. And, And so all the kind of gloom and the sadness in Charles, actually I'm trying to sort of suppress and mm-hmm. only show through physicality and stuff like that. And we worked that out really early on with Polly Bennett, who did all the movement, and William Conacher with the voice, about how we can show those things in a physical way as opposed Absolutely. to a kind of textual... The pockets. Pockets. And it's like the more hunchness, yeah. yeah. And then you've got to pass it on to someone else. I know, that's weird. <laughs> I know, we... Is it? It is quite weird. I like exciting. Yeah. I'm really... I could not be happier. I remember talking to Vanessa Kirby about it before they cast anything when she was thinking about the idea that someone else might play it. And she was so buzzed and excited at the idea of, like, passing this on and someone else doing it. And, And, yeah, that's pretty much how I feel is that I feel like my part in this really brilliant story has been... It feels like it's been written for me because, and everyone's kind of said that, is mm-hmm. that it feels like this is the the period of that person's life that feels weirdly relevant to me and yeah. feels interesting to me. Josh, thank you for your time. Thanks, Edith. Nice to chat. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Julian Gerald, Mark Wallage and Josh O'Connor. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode seven, titled The Hereditary Principle. 
At her lowest ebb, Margaret unearths a shocking secret which shakes her faith in the family and leads her to confront her struggles with mental health. Are you aware of anyone else in your immediate family struggling with mental health issues? Prince of Wales, he has his ups and downs. I wouldn't say that's a condition. That's just marriage. The Duke of Gloucester, my uncle. He got low from time to time. I only ask because I am aware through professional colleagues of the sisters. Sisters? Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.